Change is going to come. I wanted to open with Bill Frizzell's jazz version of that beautiful Sam Cooke tune. Welcome this morning to the third theme talk. Is it the third? I feel as if we've been here for three months in the best possible way. I think you all know who I am. I'm Claire MacDonald and I'm following two remarkable... Voice up a bit. I'm Thank you. Oh, OK. Voice up. <laughs> and I'm following two remarkable women speakers on Monday and Tuesday and it's my pleasure to do that. I'm going to light our chalice in a moment. And I'm going to read something I'm calling inspired by somebody else who wrote one, what I call a prayer poem. And I'd like to read it for you. It's one I've written for us today. In our hands. It is in our hands the fabric of our lives as we knit. Casting on and casting off threading beads onto yarn, slipping stitches over other stitches to make lace that fans out across the skein of it, losing touch with the pattern and returning to repair or rip out or start again. It lengthens, it shrinks, it loosens, it tightens, it contains pleasure, it disappoints, holes, appear from nowhere. It starts to look nothing like it looked like being at the start, this life, this slipping and knotting of threads of wool, of silk running through our fingers. May our hands be supple and strong. May we use them well to stitch and to repair. It is in our hands. Wow. Amen. Who wrote that? She wrote I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> right, okay, I can go home then. In praise of knitting. Um, we're all going on a bear hunt this morning, and I know, well, I, I know at least two people who know what it is to go on a bear hunt with Michael Rosen and Shirley Hughes. And, and actually, one of them is me, so that's at least three of us, because I can see two people over there. And I, many of you will know this wonderful book, and many of you will have read it to your own children. And I was also lucky enough to find a pack of memory cards, and some of you will have a card. Now, I've got one of every single one of these cards, and I'm going to give them to... Two people who are very experienced. And what I would like you to do, those of you who've got cards, is that when we get to the appropriate picture, if you can see it, that you, and you have got the right card, say you've got a dog or you've got swishy swashy, or that you hold your card up. And if you can do it too, that'll be fine. Or if you just want to look at them, that's fine too. So we are all going on a bear hunt. And you may all be able to see this little book. So, um, yeah, before we start, I just want to see where I'm going. So, yeah, where are we going? (laughs) 
going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. <coughs> what a beautiful day. We're not scared. <laughs> swishy swashies. Anybody got swishy swashy? Swishy swashy, swishy swashy, swishy swashy. No, that, that one, it says swishy swashy on the The experienced one's behind yeah, us. We're going to, we're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Who's going on the bear hunt? Is there a dog anywhere? Has anybody got a dog? Have you got the dog? Oh, there we go. We've got the dog. And we've got some children. And we've got somebody on Dad's shoulders. There we go. We've got everybody going on the bear hunt. And look at them all. And they come to a river. Uh-oh. River. A deep, cold river. And if anybody knows this, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no. We've got to go through it. Splish, splosh. Splash, splosh. Splash, splosh. We're on the other side. We're a bit muddy. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh. Mud. This oozy mud. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We Oh, no. We've got to get through it. Squelch, 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 squelch. <laughs> Hands up, squelch, as we're going on a bear hunt. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh -oh, a forest. A big, dark forest. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh no. We've got to go through it. Stumble trips, stumble trips, stumble trips. <laughs> We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, a snowstorm. A whirling, whirling snowstorm. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no. We've got to go through it. Anybody got a snowstorm? We're going on a bounce. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh. A cave. Oh. A narrow, gloomy cave. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no. We've got to go through it. Stumble trip, stumble trip, back through the mud, squelch, 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 drop, back through the river, splish, splosh, splish, splosh, back through the grass, swishy, 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 get to our front door, 
open the door, up the stairs. Oh no, we forgot to lock the door. Back downstairs. <laughs> Shut the door. Back upstairs, into the bedroom, into bed and... Under the Under covers. The covers. <laughs> We're not going on a bear hunt again. <laughs> pleasure of receiving the knowledge that Cody and Catherine with NanoCoin have not yet had the pleasure of this book which they now have so I think and now we'll be able to think of NanoCoin enjoying the bear hunt as well and um, I think if the children would like to leave I think yeah well <laughs> I know Claire was actually dying to get up and do all the actions there. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and uh, everybody who's got cars, just leave them. We'll give them to Arturo. Excellent. And you'll go for that. Arturo, I'm going to give you the packet. And then you can put them in a the packet as well. Here you go. There we go. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, just take some Arturo, and what we'll do is we'll collect them up later and we'll give them to Mummy. So you can go. Yeah? I think we're going to going on a bear hunt. Okay. I love the bear hunt story. The bear hunt story says to me, be here now. It has joy and pain and suffering and fear. And it's about getting on, going through it, feel the fear and carry on. We can do it together. It's about weathering. Weathering is that thing we do that joins the dots of fear and pain and joy. Weathering. That ability just to go through it, to take the rough with the smooth and carry on. And it's a journey, isn't it? It's a pilgrimage, it's a metaphor. The road is rough, it's fun, it's everything. Most of all, it says that the most fun is hidden in plain sight and that the best things happen when we cut loose and make an ordinary journey magic with our own imagination. And I guess the big thing is really that, that we express in imaginative words and images all the time what it is to live in the world. This is like a storm or a shelter from the storm. We have many rivers to cross and the river is wide, but home is across the river. Here's the thing. There is no space between living and expressing what living means. When we hear the story, we feel the snow, the mud, we experience just for a bit or, or a lot, depending on who you are, the feel, the smell, the look of things. We feel it through making a world of words and pictures. In her Nobel Prize acceptance speech, the writer Toni Morrison said, tell us what the world has been to you in the dark places and the light. Don't tell us what to believe, what to fear. Show us belief's wide skirt and the stitch that unravels fear's call, C-A-U-L, that wrapping, the call. 
Weather has more, weathering has more layers to it, of course. It asks us to accept that life changes us as we weather the storms, real as well as metaphorical, scuffing and grazing us and weathering the boards of our house, sometimes beyond repair. It starts to look nothing like it looked like being at the start. I want to say that I have the answer to walking our paths with joy and hope in this turbulent world. We just need the glue, the stick to of just weathering. And yet, <laughs> my talk today is also about something else that we need, that trickster joy that subversive stitch, that live flame, that transformative spark. It should come with a health warning. This will change your life. Take care. No wonder people play it safe. No wonder oppressive regimes and harsh <coughs> political systems dampen it. It's dynamite is joy. And to light it, tend it, allow it to come in and to fly out, it will return. We have to have a daily life, an existence that can be at the very least a temporary refuge for joy, a perch. <coughs> Emily Dickinson says that hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul, joy too, always ready to fly out as well as in. Before I start talking about that, I'd like us to sing. And before we sing, I just want to invite you to look around at us, where we are here now. Take a moment to just mentally note what we see today through the window, that mist. <coughs> Say a quick nod or even a hello to the people around us and just settle ourselves. We are so good at modelling community at summer school, at creating an everyday practice of listening, of reflecting, of nourishing one another, of fun and choir, of singing and praying and playing. And one of the ways that we do this is to sing together. And I'd like us just to turn to the song that I'd like us to sing, hymn number 33 in the Green Book. And I'm sorry there are... We have to share. Actually, I'm not sorry that we have to share so much. That's a terrible thing to say. I'm sorry we have to share so much. Um, we have to share. And it starts, can you hear, oh, my friend, in the place where you stand? And I want to say a little bit about it before we sing it. If you have it, number 33, 33, in the green book. And if you haven't got a copy, try and get near someone who has. And in fact, the more that happens, the better, really. But I've got a little intro to this hymn. I first sung this song. Nancy, can you you need to take a chair and well, I was just gonna I didn't know you were gonna talk, I thought we were gonna say <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to get it near a hymnal. It's alright. 
I think you know it off by heart. I do, yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> because... <laughs> you'll, you'll get that chance. I say that because, of course, I did learn this hymn from Nancy <laughs> in 2011 at my engagement group on poetry and ecology with Nancy and Julie Dadson, which was a brilliant... Woo! Gosh! We can't go over it. <laughs> Luckily, we're in here. We've been expecting this, haven't we? Wow. And if you look at the page, if you, if you look at the page, you will see that it's an American tune. It says on here, collected by William Caldwell, published in 1837 as one of the Union Harmony songs. There was only ever one printing of the Union Harmony collection, and it collected a much older musical tradition, an oral tradition, a vernacular tradition, in one book. I only recently realised that this was the background, despite the fact that it's written on the page, to the hymn, when I heard the folk and country singer Abigail Washburn on American Public Radio. She's a Unitarian Universalist by birth and a social activist and a favourite singer of mine. She says of herself that she was brought up to cultivate good action. She reminded us that this old oral music tradition has bitter roots. Roots in which joy and woe are woven fine, to quote William Blake after hearing Margaret Kirk's wonderful talk on Monday morning. The rich singing tradition of the American South was made in part by the creative mix of African slaves and Irish workers on plantations, made from the powerful inventiveness of people in awful conditions, from a meeting of banjos and fiddles, Tunes later taken up by white and black miners and other workers in West Virginia and Tennessee and indeed all over the country. Abigail Washburn is a banjo player and the banjo comes from West Africa. Abigail vividly conjured up an image from the past in which slave traders would place a banjo player on a ship to draw other Africans to the boat, seduced if you like by its joyful sound they they would be secured and locked down and transported overseas before they knew it. Yet the music they made when they arrived in America met other musics with their own stringed instruments and songs is extraordinary, collected by many people over the last couple of centuries, as well, of course, as forming most of the basis of the American popular music tradition, um, including William Caldwell. We sing in conversation with a past we do not know. We draw into the present the echoes of ancient voices. We follow tunes laid down in joy and woe. The words to this hymn were written much, much later by Emily Thorne. And over the fast, past few days, I've been following her trail. She was born in 1915, as it says there on the hymn book, and I found her obituary from 2004. She was wonderful. She was a Unitarian. She was the religious director for the American Ethical Society from the 50s to the 70s. She worked for social causes, for anti-racism. She was a member of the NAACP. She worked for liberal education. She too cultivated herself for good action. She worshipped and worshipped, she worshipped and worked at and for First Unitarian Church in Wilmington, Delaware. And so I looked that up. I 
as you do when you're procrastinating, I have to say. <laughs> and I found a booklet on the history of their church and its witness and its work. And so I wrote to the Reverend Roberta Finkelstein, who was their minister, just to say hi from summer school and tell her that we would be singing this hymn today. Now, and she wrote back, Dear Claire, how lovely to think about the ways we are connected. Thanks for being in touch. How lovely to think about the ways we are connected. This day, now. We are thinking this week about the way our now is shaped in these turbulent times. What informs it, what voices press into it and make demands of it. About how we weave those beads of joy and pain and grief into our lives. Margaret quoted Stanley Kunitz in her talk. And so I went even more procrastination <laughs> to YouTube and listened to his wonderful poem, The Layers, in which he looks towards the shortening horizon of his own life. How shall the heart be reconciled to its feast of losses? Life is difficult, and religion recognizes its brokenness and its potential, and yet this world is divine. As Cody read yesterday from Carl Scarvel's five-minute talk on hiking. Margaret reminded us of the powerfully negative voices that can play out on our phones, on our laptops, on Facebook pages, in comments on posts. We live in a messy, dirty, toxic at times soup of opinion. We are thinking about joy. Emily Thorne would I think be fairly surprised to hear me talk of her but she wrote the words to a song we still sing she spoke to our world in her words where we stand how we hear how we respond the call we listen to all of this in Emily Thorne's language sung to a tune with an ancient past collected 180 years ago, imagine the voices that have shaped it since. Let us stand as we're able and sing together number 33 from the Green Book. And of course, I don't have a copy, so I'm going to come and share with Sarah. Okay, Cody's going to play it through first. Some of us know it, some of us don't. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
thank you. Please sit down. I'd like us to stand and sing it again at the end if we feel we're able to. Glad of These Times by Helen Dunmore, a poem which is on your handout if you want to follow it along with me. Driving along the motorway, swerving the packed lanes, I am glad of these times because I did not die in childbirth. Because my children will survive me, I am glad of these times. I am not hungry, I do not curtsy, I lock my door with my own key, and I am glad of these times. Glad of central heating and cable TV, glad of email and keyhole surgery, glad of power showers and washing machines, glad of polio inoculations, glad of three weeks paid holiday, glad of smart cars at cards and cashback, glad of 20 types of yogurt, glad of cheap flights to Prague, glad that I work. I do not breathe pure air or walk green lanes, see darkness, hear silence, make music, tell stories, Tend the dead in their dying, tend the newborn in their birthing, tend the fire in its breathing. But I am glad of my times, these times, the age we feel in our bones, the, our rage of tire music, speed annulling the peasant graves of all my ancestors. Glad of my hands on the wheel and the cloud of grit as it rises where JCBs move motherly, widening the packed motorway. <laughs> My reflection then today concerns how we welcome gladness, beauty, even transforming joy into our lives. I'm not talking here about the how-to in the familiar sense that Catherine talked about yesterday as being unhelpful anyway, in her own search for wellness and balance. How to declutter, how to live a simpler or more complex, certainly richer, perhaps more minimal life, not that. This is more about the way we carry on, the ordinary patterns that we make as we knit up and repair our lives, as we weather storms <laughs> and weave the texture of our days. ways make joy happen. Margaret talked so eloquently on Monday about the ways we feel harsh one-dimensional voices impinging on the layered reality of the everyday we share. It's being thinned out or occupied by nastiness. We long for a life we feel we might have lost, a life where children played out and adults had time to talk, think, eat together, laugh. That connected life we reclaim just a bit, just a week here at summer school. This sense that the reality of the everyday has started to slip away is not new or unique to our times, though we often feel that the things that make it so are the demands of email and the media, of the fast-paced, time-focused life that has so many deadlines and so many sets of rules and passwords and tests for us and our children, so that we can forget at times to be glad of what it is that modernity has brought us 
as Helen Dunmore almost wickedly and certainly knowingly has written. In the 19th century, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels certainly lamented the loss of everyday life for the people of Britain. They saw the joylessness of capitalism in its heyday. They critiqued the emerging world of factory labor, where people were reduced to being hands, valued only for their labor, where children worked in mills, where life for working people was reduced to the making of profit for others. Later, William Morris, visionary, novelist, wallpaper designer, he really did a bit of everything, argued that everyone deserved beauty and joy, and that the everyday was the only place we could find that. Forget heaven. Morris wanted a bit of heaven here on earth. He opposed the shoddy stuff that people were forced to buy. He opposed the impoverishment that existed for most people in late Victorian life and saw instead the potential to reimagine an everyday that had beautiful things for ordinary folk. Science and utilitarian change could not do it alone. Morris's vision was premised on what he called the need to integrate the deeds and dreams of our daily lives. It is still a remarkably radical vision on the left to put beauty and pleasure so high on the agenda. A few weeks ago, procrastinating probably again, I watched a YouTube TED talk on video about the American artist Theaster Gates, and his name is on my handout, in, who in many ways follows Morris's great ideals and has transformed largely black neighborhoods in the US in his home city of Chicago and elsewhere through buying derelict buildings and collaborating with communities on art projects. An interviewer, after his TED talk, asked him if it was not a bit indulgent to push for art projects when people needed services. Beauty is a basic service, said Gates. Beauty is a basic service. Gates and Morris were and about putting our faith in the transformative potential of now. Not because we don't care about the future, but because we refuse to be hostage to it. Because it occurred to them, as it occurred to Buddha and many other great teachers, that this is the day we share. Just this. This is the only place we will ever be together. And it is here that is the only place we can exercise our human responsibility to make joy and share it. Yes, we have a horrible past. Yes, we live in catastrophic times. Yes, the world is beautiful and we care about where we are, who we are and how we live with passion. Abraham Joshua Heschel said of humanity, not all are guilty, but all are responsible. Here we are. And we might add, because Heschel, poet that he was, doesn't tell us what we are responsible for or what we should do, that we are also responsible for letting joy happen joy 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 oh joy 
We have to approach joy very carefully. It slips away so easily. It sloughs us off, takes flight, dries up. It also catches light in inappropriate places. It is not always good joy or ethical joy or rich in our shared values. Joy can hit you like a bolt from the blue, a lightning strike, a blow, a slap, a clap, straight between the eyes or between the legs. Joy is a tide, a rolling wave. It's dark, joy can disrupt and cause change. To be open to joy is also to be able to hold the door open to its dark alternatives. To be able to accept that joy might not happen, that its opposite might fly in. Joy is intense, transformative, close to ecstasy, even a little giddy, to quote Danny. And yet it will always be part of this mutilated world. I want to read Adam Zagajewski's poem, which is also on your handout. Try to praise the mutilated world. Try to praise the mutilated world. Remember June's long days and wild <laughs> strawberries, drops of rosé wine, the nettles that methodically overgrow the abandoned homesteads of exiles. You must praise the mutilated world. You watched the stylish yachts and ships. One of them had a long trip ahead of it, while salty oblivion waited others. You've seen the refugees going nowhere. You've heard the executioners sing joyfully. You should praise the mutilated world. Remember the moments when we were together in a white room and the curtain fluttered. Return in thought to the concert where the music flared. You gathered acorns in the park in autumn and leaves eddied over the earth's scars. Praise the mutilated world and the grey feather a thrush lost and the gentle light that strays and vanishes and returns. An interviewer asked Adam Zagajewski this question. In the last lines of the poem, you speak of the gentle light that strays and vanishes and returns. A description that beautifully captures hope. Where does your hope, hope about anything, come from? And what makes you its advocate? And he answered, it's a very interesting question. One I never ask myself, but I'll try to answer, nevertheless. The experience of someone who tries to live and write is very rich and encompasses the register of ecstasy, of joy. Years ago, I was with someone in a taxi and he asked me, do you believe in happiness? And I said, no, I don't believe in happiness. I believe in joy. I don't believe in happiness as a constant state, but I do believe in joy. A friend told me a story. 
We were at her mother's funeral in Greece in 2005, at the long meal of fish that follows Greek funerals. And I asked her about a very handsome old man who was sitting with his animated, beautiful elderly wife. And she told me it was her mother's cousin, Miltiadis, over 80 now. You noticed him, she said. Those eyes, deep, bright blue eyes. He was so handsome as a young man, let me tell you. And she told me that he had been to sea. This is a seafaring island. And had come back, aged about 23, to the island, and had been out with a friend and met some very young teenage island girls. And the girls and they had laughed and larked and gone home, but he had noticed, really noticed, this one young girl and wanted to see her again. And so, and this is 1950s Greece, he arranged to go out with his friend again and try to see them. And this was a time when most marriages were arranged. And he met the girl and he clearly liked her. And they walked and they talked. And as they walked and talked in the dark of this island night, she burst into tears. And he asked her why. And she said, I am crying because this has happened now. I am crying for what I have lost, for what will not happen, for the other loves that will not be, because I have met you when I am so young. <laughs> I looked at them, still alive, still together, eating fish in the spring sunlight 60 years later. My friend's mother had not had a life suffused by joy. She had had an arranged marriage, kept a good table, a clean house, had well brought up children, but had little joy. But oh, her funeral, the joy, the joy, the flowers in April, the procession we made on our way from town to country walking our way from the small capital of the island through swathes of spring flowers to the churchyard. Every year we text on this day, my friend and I, we talk and we remember that joy. We remember her with joy as we never could remember her in life. The joy we felt that day said, here we are in the light, momentarily lifted and held. That's joy. Religion and politics have often held everyday life hostage to a supposed better cause. A life beyond the revolution, beyond life, beyond, in the most reductive and most common modern form, retirement. Beyond this dereliction, this hard, hard work, this burdensome life, there will be a place at the welcome table a smooth golf green, common ownership. Even the insistent theme of mindfulness can suggest that the messy present is wrong. We need tools that help us to clear space, mentally declutter, simplify our minds. Morris and his form of garlanded socialism was and is unusual. It rises again and again in our dreams a place where we have collective access by right to the richness and the fruits of the earth to whom we owe our birth just by being human now. Beauty 
is a basic service. It is in our hands. I'm actually writing about joy and thinking about all this. This is a few weeks ago. As I'm standing by the stove, my two-ring burner in my Greek house, making pear chutney from fallen fruit. Or at least I'm writing in my head words that I will speak to you in three weeks' time, and I'm stirring the pot as I think. The pot is what my grandmother would have called a jelly pan, a jelly pan, a jam-making pan, an old heavy brass and copper pan that I've had for years and bought second-hand. I've used it for my chutney, and I make my marmalade from the bitter oranges in my Greek garden, and this makes me happy. Today, I washed and folded cotton sheets and put them in the bottom drawer of the chest of drawers my mother gave me when I was 21, my last birthday before she died of cancer, aged 49. The chest of drawers is here too, in my Greek house, like my Geely pan, and in the cupboard is the jam. This year's, last year's, fig, tomato chutney, marmalade. Earlier today, I made plum jam from a tree in a local garden where I had gone with my friend Katerina, and we had filled our skirts with fallen plums because we had no bag, and we pulled up our skirts and laughed and ran to the car. My mother taught me to make jam, and the way I make it, and the way I fold sheets, and the way I polish shoes is her. These patterns of our lives, with all their remembered grief and pain and precious, precious joy. We hold them in the now we continue to make and remake, the now we weather, the now we tend so that we can stop joy scattering on the floor like beads falling off the thread, the now, the everyday. The most renowned theorist of the everyday, yes, it has its own theory, is Michel de Certeau, SJ. The French Jesuit sociologist, whose book, The Practice of Everyday Life, caused a sea change in thinking when it was published in France and then in English in the late 1970s and then in translation in the 1980s. Michel de Certeau argued that people are never, ever fully determined by what people call the system. People practice creative resistance always and every day in their lives to the institutionalized systems under which we live. He talks about the ways we walk through cities desire paths where people make the path they want to across a field, for instance. The making of lives under all conditions from vernacular everyday elements. The seizing of each moment, the inventive, odd, even eccentric way we make spaces and places our own, make them human. I'm reminded so much of Catherine in the conversation last evening, talking about the nurse who brought sheet music to her in hospital, and that they sang together. We refuse not to weave our own everyday life fabric, and it is from this everyday practice that we find the possibility of real change 
and of joy. At home of an evening in Greece and in London, the kids and I hold hands and breathe in three times. And then we light a candle in the twilight and tell a story of the day. This is what we do. We knit up the pieces of experience into a story. We remember their parts and put them back together in words and movements. This work, the making of the fabric, the weaving the pattern, is what keeps the beads from falling out. We weave in the beads, the shiny beads, the tears and the joy. We hold them in the weave and this is work and this is joy. The everyday is today. From Old English, today, meaning on the day. Today, this day, on the day. In this everyday, we take our first and last breaths. There is no special day to do the work of dying, as Samuel Beckett reminds us just as there's no special day to be born. For many of us who no longer believe in transcendence or another life somewhere else, the every day contains the possibility of a better world. For there is nowhere else in which to place it than here in the every day, continuously unwinding. It simply goes on emerging and escaping. The everyday is simply here, now. The hinge between past and future, where we must act, and in which we are loved, acknowledged, remembered, grieved for, and commemorated. The everyday is the only place we have to do our work. It is where life happens, reclaiming the everyday makes joy possible. I'd like to read a final poem, a favourite of mine, For the Children, by Gary Snyder, which is also on your sheet. The rising hills, the slopes of statistics lie before us, the steep climb of everything going up, up, as we all go down. In the next century, or the one before that, or the one beyond that, they say, are valleys, pastures. We can meet there in peace if we make it. To climb these coming crests, one word to you, to you and your children. Stay together, learn the flowers, go light. <laughs> Thank you. I would like to invite us as we close, I have some closing words, and I would like to invite us again to stand and sing, thinking of Emily Thorne and William Caldwell and all those ancient voices. Hymn number 33. Do you hear, O oh my friend, in the place where you stand?
My closing words are from the American composer Meredith Monk. The only reason for doing it is that you might have the joy of discovery on a day-to-day -day level. The only reason for doing it, really, is that you love doing it. What it gets down to is, how do you want to spend your time on earth? <laughs> Amen, and thank you.